It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. You're listening to a clip of Kisses for Christmas Day by Diana Tyler. This singer-songwriter from Lorraine County, who is selling her music to raise money for her church roof, is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, have you ever heard of the Walt Disney movie Johnny Shiloh? I mean, it, it was made back in the, what, 1963, so maybe not, but you were a kid once, maybe. What was it about? Well, it's based on the true story of a little drummer boy who ran away from his home in Newark, Ohio, and he joined the Union Army during the Civil War at the age of nine. Uh, It doesn't ring a bell, but nine years old? They accepted boys in the Army at nine? Not as a general rule. I mean, there were some very young drummer boys, but typically older than nine. Johnny, however, was one of a kind. It's a really great story. Was it true, though? You know, pretty much. His name was Johnny Clem. There was also a 2007 film about him called Johnny, the True Story of a Civil War Legend. I haven't seen that one. Internet databases say both movies about him mixed fact with fiction. And frankly, the historical record was already muddled. And you're going to set this straight, right? As much as I can, because Johnny's life needs no embellishment. It's perfect, just the way it happened. So for tonight's episode, we're going to try and peel away some of the fictional narratives and get to the real story of a little soldier who knew at a very tender age that he was destined for life in service to his country. Joseph Clem was born on August the 13th, 1851, in Newark, Ohio. That's the seat of Licking County. It was a pivotal time for another reason. 
A couple of decades earlier, Newark was a scattered collection of log cabins in the landscape of rolling hills. But this all changed, coincidentally, at the time of Johnny's birth. The completion of the Ohio Canal and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad's choice of Newark as its headquarters set the stage for Newark to go from an agricultural community to a manufacturing mecca. As Johnny was growing up, he would have been surrounded by new glass companies, stove makers, portable engine companies, and sawmills. Johnny's parents were Roman and Magdalene Clem. Roman had been born in Germany, Magdalene in France. They'd originally immigrated to Cincinnati, but they moved to Newark shortly before starting their family. They lived with relatives until they could settle into their own home at the corner of 11th and Granville Streets, and they added two more children to their family, giving Johnny a sister, Mary, and a brother, Louis. Johnny was living a pretty normal 19th century life at first, going to school, going to church, doing his chores. But then his mom died in a train accident on August the 2nd, 1861. Now, just a few months before then, the Civil War had begun, and President Abraham Lincoln issued his call for volunteers. With his mother gone now, Johnny felt somewhat untethered, and free to answer that call. He'd discussed his desire to become a drummer boy with his newly widowed father, who gave him a resounding no. Johnny Clem was not only just nine years old, he was small for his age, four foot tall and all of 50 pounds. But no doubt Johnny had been moved to watching the local men go off to war. Licking County's first gift to President Lincoln was Ohio's 3rd Regiment, assembled the spring before his mother's death, led by Lon McDougal, who had just been commissioned as its captain. The company marched down 3rd Street on a chilly April day in 1861. I found a report of this event a few years later that said, Who does not remember the solemn faces and the streaming eyes of the people as that little column filed down the street to take their place in the Army of the Union? Almost assuredly, Johnny was at the side of the road watching this procession. Johnny had even approached Captain McDougal about being the company's drummer boy. And while the commander may have been impressed with the little guy's commitment, he remarked that he wasn't enlisting infants. Johnny was undeterred. We're not sure when Johnny ran away, since his mother died August the 2nd, and Johnny's birthday was August the 15th. He could have still been nine years old, or he could have been ten. Historical accounts seem evenly divided on this point. There are also different versions of how he ran away. One popular story is that Johnny stowed himself in a train's baggage car as a local regiment left the state and crossed the Ohio River to a mobilization camp in Covington, Kentucky. That's where Johnny saw his second opportunity to join the war effort with a regiment from Michigan. Again, we need to be vague here. History has attached Johnny to the 22nd Regiment of Michigan. But if Johnny 
arrived at the training camp in the fall of 1861, he wouldn't have found the 22nd. They weren't formed till some months later. We can only say that whichever company he found, he asked a new commander if he could be their drummer boy. The response was the same as before. Johnny was just way too young, way too small. Johnny stayed with the unit anyway, performing chores around camp as they trained for upcoming battles. And when they began to move, his comrades were touched by how the little guy struggled over rough terrain to keep up with them. Eventually, they adopted him as their mascot, gave him a drum, and even a musket with its barrel sawed off to make it light enough for him to carry. Because Johnny wasn't an official soldier, the other soldiers and officers took up a collection to give him a full soldier's pay of $13 a month. Now here's where we come to the first big legend of Johnny that is a mystery. History has come to know Johnny Clem as Johnny Shiloh. And in 1963, Walt Disney made a film by that name inspired by Johnny's life. The name Shiloh came from the idea that in April of 1862, Johnny saw his first action at the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee. Reportedly, a shell exploded near him, a fragment of which struck and destroyed his drum with such force that it knocked him to the ground unconscious. Researchers have called this particular incident into question because the 22nd Michigan, to which Johnny was supposed to be attached, wasn't at the Battle of Shiloh. So how did that idea come about? Well, later in the year, 1862, a song was published called The Drummer Boy of Shiloh. In another year, Johnny Clem, he's going to start making real headlines for a completely different reason. And it seems likely that as Johnny attained that celebrity status, people simply made the leap and connected him to that song. The idea of Johnny being at the front lines of Shiloh persisted well into the 20th century. Like I said, a Disney movie was based on this premise, but we really don't know if he was there. The only argument for him being at Shiloh is that maybe Johnny wasn't with the 22nd Michigan at the start of his young career, that the Michigan soldiers he attached himself to that fall of 1861, maybe they were another regiment that did participate in the Battle of Shiloh. This, however, is a long shot and the least favorite scenario of historians. So back to what we know for sure. Because whether or not Johnny was at Shiloh, it was another battle that would lead him to fame. It was 1863 and the Battle of Chickamauga in southeastern Tennessee. Johnny was 11 years old now, still looking much younger than his age. During the battle, he hopped on an artillery caisson. That's that four-wheeled cart that usually moves cannons. And he rode it all the way to the front of the lines, his sawed-off musket in his hands. During the battle, at a time when the Union was retreating, Johnny became separated from his company. He tried to catch up to the Union line, but he was intercepted by a Confederate officer on horseback. A colonel, no less. 
the colonel approached Johnny, and when he saw his tiny size, he laughed at him and said, Surrender, you little son of a bitch. According to Johnny, this is when he raised his gun, cocked it, aimed, and fired. The colonel, who clearly had underestimated the little guy in front of him, fell from his horse. Now, that happened. But there's a second legend that grew from this very real encounter. Johnny became famous for this incident. Newspapers all over the country would tell the tale. And universally, they announced the unnamed colonel had been shot dead. But decades later, biographies of Johnny Clem said this. Johnny left the scene that day, convinced the colonel was dead, and it tormented him. Shooting at soldiers from a distance was one thing. Pulling the trigger on a man who's staring at you from a few feet away, that was something else. But days later, Johnny learned the colonel had survived, and he was very happy for it. Though the newspapers never named the colonel, historians believe the man Johnny shot was probably Colonel Calvin Walker of the 3rd Tennessee, which is the regiment that was doing battle that day with the Michigan boys. Anyway, after shooting the colonel, Johnny managed to make it back to the Union line, and his regiment moved into Georgia. And there, in September of 1863, Johnny was set to help guard a wagon train when suddenly they were attacked by a Confederate cavalry. Johnny was captured He was taken to Major General Joseph Wheeler, who, according to Johnny, said, What are you doing here, you damn little Yankee scoundrel? To which Johnny said he retorted, General Wheeler, I am no more a damn scoundrel than you are, sir. The rebels relieved Johnny of all of his possessions, his uniform, and the little money he had on him. He didn't care, but they did take something from him that very much bothered him. His hat, which had three bullet holes in it. Now, Johnny wasn't a prisoner of war for long. Within weeks, he was included in a prisoner exchange, and he was taken to Camp Chase. That's in Columbus, Ohio. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum, In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. In December of 1863, he met Union General William Rosecrans. Rosecrans saw these chevrons on the little soldier's coat sleeves and asked the meaning of it. Johnny proudly told the general he was promoted to corporal for shooting a rebel colonel, and he told him his story. 
Well, General Rosecrans did better than a few chevrons. He swore Johnny into service, making him regular army for the first time. He gave him the badge of the Roll of Honor, and he promoted him to the rank of sergeant. Johnny, now 12 years old and all of 63 pounds, was assigned to be an orderly and messenger for General George Thomas. By now, Johnny had ditched his middle name Joseph and was going by John Lincoln Clem. He had adopted his new name out of respect for President Lincoln. General Rosecrans is the one who started telling everybody about Johnny Clem. But the media in the South used him differently than newspapers in the North. To the Confederacy, Johnny Clem was great propaganda, held up as an example of, quote, what sore straits the Yankees are driven to when they have to send their babies out to fight us. But in the North, Johnny Clem was a cherished example of Yankee bravery. The Cleveland Daily Leader reported that photographs of the boy hero of the Cumberland Army were selling like hotcakes. In Chicago, citizens took up a collection and bought him a new blue sergeant's uniform to replace the one that had been taken from him. In January of 1865, the Ohio General Assembly invited their native son to the Capitol, where they introduced him and predicted he'd be the next General Grant of some future war. And soon after that, he was called to his hometown of Newark, where he was presented with a sword. By the end of the Civil War, Johnny had been wounded twice. had fought in the battles of Kennesaw Mountain, Perryville, Murfreesboro, Atlanta, and Nashville. When the war ended, Johnny returned to Newark and tried to be a normal kid. When he'd left, he he didn't know how to read or write. He'd picked up those skills during his service. But he graduated from Newark High School in 1870. The following year, Ulysses S. Grant, the Union's commander who by now was president of the United States, used his influence to give Johnny an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. But Johnny had spent his youth as a soldier, not a scholar. He failed the entrance exams twice. So on December the 18th, 1871, President Grant commissioned Johnny a second lieutenant in the regular army. Johnny got married four years after that, to Anita Rosetta French. They had trouble starting a family, losing three of their first four babies. But one boy survived and was named after him, John Lincoln Clem Jr. Anita died in 1899, leaving Johnny a widower with a 14-year-old son. And in 1903, he married Bessie Sullivan of San Antonio, Texas. She was the daughter of a Confederate veteran. He fathered a daughter with her when he was 55 years old. That daughter, Anne, went on to become a nun and mother superior of a monastery in Reno, Nevada. Now, let me get back to Johnny, because in 1903, he attained the rank of colonel. By the time he retired in 1916, he was a brigadier general. He didn't want to leave the service, but had reached the mandatory retirement age of 65. His time in the Army had spanned 55 years. 
One year into his retirement, President Woodrow Wilson bestowed on Johnny the title of Major General. He'd gone from drummer boy to the third highest rank in the Army. Still, he always said the commission he was proud of most was when President Grant made him a second lieutenant in 1871 after he'd failed those West Point exams. General Clem died in San Antonio on May the 13th, 1937, at the age of 85. He's buried at Arlington National Cemetery, where his monument reads, The Drummer Boy of Chickamauga. Johnny never forgot his hometown. He visited Newark throughout his life, participating in veterans parades and reunions. His sister, Mary Elizabeth, married and stayed in town and gave him seven nephews and nieces to come back and see. His brother, Louis, though, was killed at the age of 21 during an Indian attack in the state of Washington. That was shortly after the Civil War, and Johnny went to Washington to retrieve his brother's body and bring it back home for burial in Newark. Johnny's hometown never forgot him either. There's a statue of young John Clem near the Licking County Historical Society's Buckingham Meeting House on North 6th Street. He's dressed in his oversized uniform, beating his drum. And in the Newark City School District, nearly 500 students attend John Clem Elementary School. So I'm trying to picture any nine-year-old kid I know who could face seeing four years of war. I mean, that's up close and personal. Johnny must have been an entirely different breed. For that matter, try and picture any adult you know watching friends blown up on the field of battle for four years straight and coming away sane, let alone convinced that you wanted to live an entire lifetime in the military. I'd say he was a reincarnation of General Patton, but we both know he came after. Maybe he was reincarnated from Alexander the Great. It certainly seemed to be his destiny. What a cool story, and I'm so glad he came from Ohio. Yet another reason to be proud of the Buckeye State. And that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Diana Tyler hails from Lorraine County, where she's a church secretary and writes a lot of original Christian rock music for worship. She has a funnier side as well. She's got a catalog full of body tunes. Given the season, let's just say she's both naughty and nice. You can check out her very diverse collection at dianatyler.com. Tonight, we picked out a lighthearted Christmas tune called Kisses for Christmas Day. Lyricist Sharon Longworth wrote it as an homage to military members stationed away from home. Then Sharon asked Diana to put music to it and sing it, and we have the result. By the way, all of Diana's songs are featured on her website. She's selling the CDs to raise money to pay off her church's new roof. So, if you're feeling charitable this season and enjoy how this hardworking secretary and mom uses her talents to improve her community, drop her a bill at her website and pick up an album to support her. That's dianatyler.com. Here's Kisses for Christmas Day by Diana Tyler. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.